Africa Calling, a bi-monthly podcast with sound-rich reports from our correspondents on the continent. African Voices reporting on African stories produced by Radio France International. Hello and welcome to episode 23 of the Africa Calling podcast on April 30th, 2021. I'm Laura Angela Bagnetto. We have a number of stories from our correspondents on the African continent this week, including a look at how natural hair is gaining more popularity in Douala, Cameroon. While Somalia is going through tough times politically, one of the bright spots is that it's recently taken back the power to register aircraft in the country. And we were in the Sudanese capital, Khartoum, to find out how people are faring two years after the fall of strongman Omar al-Bashir. And finally, don't forget our special song at the end. In Cameroon, the multi-billion dollar hair industry in Africa is experiencing a revolution that has taken years but is gradually becoming the new normal. More women in Cameroon are now doing away with hair-relaxing products and extensions and rather embracing their natural Afro hair. Correspondent Cynthia Ngueno has more from Cameroon's economic capital, Douala. Gone are those days when African women necessarily had to spend huge amounts of money to relax their hair or hide it with artificial hair to feel beautiful and attractive. Today they feel confident wearing their hair curled, thick and puffed in every style possible. Though not at a convenient rate yet, many are those Cameroonian women who embrace their natural Afro, says Meforo its name, an African hair expert. And these days we are having more or less natural hair persons in Douala hair in the French zone than the English zone. In the English zone we have more uh, um, naturals than the, than the relaxed and those who keep extensions on their hair. Mary Jane Chin Yaya is a young Cameroonian humanitarian worker and blogger based in Boya in the southwest of the country. She is one of the young women keeping her hair in its natural state. She says she began keeping an afro years ago after her formerly relaxed hair and scalp suffered damage from chemicals. What made me to begin my natural hair journey was when I realized that my scalp was hurting too much from the too much products that I applied on my hair to make it soft. And the problem was not actually making it um, soft. I just wanted to fit in, you know. I wanted to do different hairstyles, not knowing that I could actually do these hairstyles without um, necessarily putting all of those relaxers on my hair. It would have been better. Okay, try to put more gel behind, pull all the spots up. But these spots are not neat enough. When you go losing them back again, comb it for it to be very flat, hold it, twist it very well. It names 12 year long career in natural hair styling and treatment has earned him the nickname Hair Maestro. At his salon in the Daido neighborhood in Douala, Cameroon's economic capital, 
He treats and styles daily dozens of women's natural hair of every category and length. Here it is a normal busy day of natural hair washing, drying and styling at a price ranging from 6 to 15,000 francs CFA or 9 to 22 euros, a cost that is a luxury for most Cameroonian women who have embarked on the natural hair journey but can't afford to spend that much on maintenance and treatment. Nature has made it less costly for women like Yaya who opt for natural home remedies in their Afro hair maintenance. Natural hair is very expensive to maintain, to keep it soft, to keep it beautiful, to keep it shiny and moisturized. But at the same time, there are very local products that you can use that are also very healthy. If you're with aloe vera, if you're with rice water, just keep on applying it, be patient, make sure that you use good moisturizers. But nurturing African hair to be beautiful and healthy takes time, patience, and above all, professional treatment, which is largely unavailable, says its name. We have less professionals uh, who manages the hair. You see that when you go to salons, it's the professionals that even advise you that, advise that you will relax your hair, your hair is too strong. But they are supposed to tell you what to do. They are supposed to propose products to you for you to use so your hair can be soft, can be easily managed, and you don't see that difficulty in you managing your hair. But today, uh, it's the other way around. So we have less professional. It's difficult for you to have healthy hair. Start using the other brush. Your right? hair will be a bit flat. From a psychological point of view, despite the setbacks, choosing the natural hair journey is already a big step towards embracing some lost African values, according to Dr. Murel Njenji, lecturer of psychology at the University of Yaoundé One. She says it is also an act of African women returning to their real identity. I think women are conscious that they have to come back to their real identity. Because changing your hair, you will not become a white woman and you will no more be a black woman. So you are in the middle like that and you don't have any identity. And then we think that we have to conserve our hair as we, we come to the world with. Like many others, Ye Clifford, a young Cameroonian man agrees that an African woman's natural hair is a point of attraction and beauty for him. He thinks it makes them look beautiful and unique. And I see a woman with her natural hair, like I'm like, that looks beautiful. And I would like my woman to be like that. Because I see them naturally beautiful with their hairs as they are. When she puts on those uh, wigs or whatsoever they call it, she is somebody else, but when she's on her natural hair, you see a different person. The hair industry in Africa for many years mainly consisted of imported shampoos, relaxers, weaves and extensions, gaining over $7 billion in South Africa, Nigeria and Cameroon, according to 2016 research. 
But as more women embark on the natural hair journey, Afro hair management could become a major part of the local hair industry too. Reporting for RFI's Africa Calling, I am Cynthia Nguemo in Douala, Cameroon. Africa Calling, produced by Radio France International. In Sudan, April is a big anniversary month for the country. Two years ago, on the 6th, a large sit-in of 800,000 people began at the capital in front of army headquarters, part of the Sudan uprising. Sudanese called for freedom, peace, and justice, and an end of strongman Omar al-Bashir. Just five days later, Bashir, who had ruled the country for nearly 30 years, was arrested. That was the beginning of the end for Bashir's repressive regime and paved the way for the transitional council later in the year. But what's happened in the two years since? A number of sweeping political changes and an economic overhaul have been attempted, along with the continued role of the military, which was what the Bashir regime was based on. And what about justice for those who were killed during the uprising? Hundreds died at the hands of the military during protests around the country, and many were forcibly disappeared. We were in Sudan's capital, Khartoum, to speak to Sudanese and to find out how they feel about the changes that have been made, and more importantly, the ones that haven't. A small but spirited group of about 200 people are marching on the streets of Khartoum, near the Jackson Main Transport area, on April 6th. They're marking the day the sit-in began two years ago, a turning point in Sudan's uprising against the 30-year regime of Omar al-Bashir. This group of protesters is among the most radical. They're unhappy with the way that things have gone since the fall of Bashir. The caller is saying the whole council, referring to the sovereign council, the group of military and civilians that make up the transitional government. The response from the group, they must fall. Abdel Fattah el-Burhan is named the army general heading the council with, he must fall. Hameti as well, referring to deputy head of council, General Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, he must fall. The caller adds, who smells like urine, he must fall, with a few chuckles coming out of the group. Their humor doesn't belie their frustration with the transitional political process two years on. Some Sudanese are fed up, while others are impatient. It's a natural reaction after fighting against President Omar al-Bashir's regime, says Amjad Farid, political activist. Uh, of course, with all the hopes and the inspirations that brought by the revolution, uh, people uh, are not patient, and they have, they have the right. Uh, those people took the streets and uh, risked themselves and, and, and lost their uh, beloved ones, their comrades, their friends, uh, in, in a promise that things are going to be better. But in the natural scheme of things, things in, in, after such a change, things are going to be worse before it's, it's getting better. Fareed, a medical doctor, was until a cabinet shuffle in February the assistant head of staff to transition Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdok. He had played a key role in the protest movement. The government was established after the fall of Bashir on April 11, 2019, a transitional government composed of military officers and civilian ministers with Hamdok, an economist by profession, at the helm. 
Sudanese people had taken to the streets in the capital and throughout the country with regularity since the beginning in December 2018, with growing discontent over Bashir's rule. At the grassroots, revolutionary neighborhood communities, such as the one Azza Surkati is an elective member of in the Memura section of the capital, continue to push for change, urging a faster pace of reforms. During the uprising, neighbors mobilized and marched as part of the protest movement, but on an individual basis, as an effort to not call attention to their area. Now, unity is the word of the day, as many try to push for the desperately needed reforms within the government. For Sirkati and other members of the neighborhood committees, it's all about getting justice for those who died during the uprising, especially those who were killed or disappeared during the sit-in. It started with the slogan, freedom, peace and justice, and still the judiciary hasn't been completely cleaned of the Kazan. Sirkati is referring to the nickname of the members of the Bashir regime, Kazan or ubiquitous metal cups found throughout the country. The process of getting justice isn't finished. We were hoping for a radical change in government, but maybe we've raised the bar too high. And of course, it was wrong to think that that was possible in such a beat-up country like Sudan. We have to be honest, we don't have a base to build on. Kazan have destroyed the country in every sector. Even our national character was destroyed. I'm not saying I'm dissatisfied. I'm one of the people who has hope in the government. Hope is a valuable commodity in Sudan, where people have been suffering from an economic crisis and the slow pace of reforms. For a titan of industry like Zuhair Saeed, the CEO of Saeed Group, an 81-year-old Sudan-based agricultural and mining company, change and deregulation is necessary to get the country back on its feet. We want the country to open up. We don't want cowboys and mafia like what used to happen in the past 30 years. We want real investors. Um, we need people who can invest in the infrastructure. We need a lot of work to be done on on the electricity, on roads, railway, the ports, lots of things. We need to work on that. And for that we need, you know, the larger international community. And one of the things that makes me happiest within less than two years, we are back into the international community. At least we, we are gaining, you know, the, the, the respect and the confidence which we lost. And that's a good sign. Saeed's referring to Sudan finally getting off the U.S. sponsors of terror list, a steep price for a country that had been under the thumb of the Bashir regime for 30 years. Across town, in the Athens section of the Central Business District, people sit and discuss politics on small stools under a portico, drinking ginger-spiced coffee. It's a mix of ages and background here, but mainly youths. While the memory of the country's past three dictatorships is perhaps far away for some, retired newspaper editor Majub Mohammed Sali sees the past for what it was quite clearly. Starting work as a journalist in 1949, he eventually started a newspaper, El Ayam, or The Days, and reported on the path to Sudan's freedom, independence on January 1, 1956, as well as three coups d'etat. Sally maintains that of all the political upheaval he's seen in his 94 years, 
the Bashir Islamist regime was the worst of all. Yeah, this, this mm. the 30 years were really horrible because that military dictatorship was very tough with the people. Uh, arrested uh, so many people, put them into jail, uh, badly treated them in jail, even killed them in some of them. Looking back on his career, Sally says that while independence was a bright spot, the atrocities committed in Darfur under Bashir's command were decidedly the worst. Uh, one cannot forget them. Uh, people have been victimized. They have left their homes, uh, went to live outside their country as refugees. They, their homes were burned down. Their loved ones were killed in front of them. That was really hard time. He says the constant crackdowns have eroded the political landscape in Sudan. Osman Mergani, the editor-in-chief of El Tayar, a cartoon-based daily newspaper, believes that because of this repression, there's a major lack of leadership. The problem is, is in the politicians. The politicians are very weak. Their capacity, even their personal capacity to rule, is quite uh, limited. But I think the failure, because the politicians are not capable, they do not uh, have... Uh, a true vision about what to be done. They do not have a strategical approach and plan, and they are not uh, capable of ruling the country, really. They are not capable of ruling the country. This time for leadership, not for a normal uh, employee to, to be appointed in the, uh, as a, a prime minister. But Sudan, right now, after al-Bashir era, needs some sort of leadership. Leadership even for the people. It's bustling in Omdurum Central Market as shoppers try to make do with what little they have. Inflation was pegged at more than 340% in March. Earlier this year, the government devalued the Sudanese pound, adjusting it to the black market exchange rate, underlining the pressure on local currency. For Kamel Karar, an economist with Sudan's Communist Party, Unifying the market exchange rate has created more difficulties for the people. One of my friends, he's a pharmacist. He said that the malaria, 10 uh, tablets before unification of this uh, exchange rate by 90 Sudanese pounds, 90, 90. Today, 900. Every, every commodity here. Rise by this ten times. Ten times. You see after two years of revolution, now people are frustrated. <laughs> Over at the roundabout in Umdurman, fellow economist Hussamuddin Ismail, who's part of a new group called the Economic Alliance, which includes like-minded people from various walks of life who don't agree with the current economic policies, says that the World Bank and International Monetary Fund is not offering a solution to the crisis based on the Sudanese experience. Right now, the government is pleasing the West, IMF World Bank, but making troubles uh, inside. And that wouldn't last. That would create 
continuous instability. Uh, so after uh, a strong revolution like the Sudanese revolution, uh, we should change our way of uh, managing the political economy. Okay, so it's not only about antagonizing someone or appeasing someone. It's about how to reduce poverty. Both he and fellow economist Karar believe in changing the currency. He also believes that involving the state in the gold market will help the government manage foreign currency reserves instead of benefiting smugglers. The most important and the most uh, dangerous part is that the rapid support forces, the companies of the uh, Sudanese army, RSF army, should declare officially their economy. Because we are believing that they are controlling indirectly 80% of, of the economy, of the parallel economy. Right? He's describing a paramilitary force that became powerful under Bashir, who used it to crack down on opponents, run since 2013 by now Deputy Head of Council Hameti. They were accused of genocide and human rights abuses in Darfur. And during the breakup of the sit-in in Khartoum in June 2019, where they attacked the masses gathered in front of the army headquarters, at least 129 were killed and many disappeared. For activist Farid, who until February was the assistant chief of staff to Prime Minister Hamdok, the military dilemma is simple. Rules and boundaries need to be set. And, uh, and this won't happen without also achieving uh, a consensus over uh, a constitution that actually uh, decide clearly uh, what is the role of, 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 of everyone and also uh, structural changes within the state apparatus itself. Adding to the mix of the problematic role the army has carved out for itself is the paragovernmental militias, such as the RSF, who are participating in the post-transition scene, and the rebel groups. The army and the military forces need to be part of the state structure. The Ministry of Defense or, or the High Command of the Army should be another uh, civil service or another uh, state structure without the ability to use the legitimate force that is in their hand to change the political uh, system. This would be the cardinal thing for the success of the transitional period. Other security services such as intelligence and the police force would be included in sweeping changes needed too, with their carte blanche to arrest and kill without clear oversight. We're in Khartoum, just one block from Sudan's army headquarters, where the beginning of the end for Bashir started. After four months of protests starting in December 2018, a group of 800,000 Sudanese amassed in front of the army building, demanding that Bashir must go. Now it's a dusty area filled with passing cars, many of the colorful graffiti murals still visible. The sit-in and the brutal crackdown that killed so many people was the turning point for many Sudanese, including Sirkati of the Memura Revolutionary Committee. Uh, we're not seeking revenge. We want to make changes for youth and future generations. We want to make sure that what happened to the martyrs, like the torture and sadistic brutality, won't happen again. The movement that overthrew Bashir has matured, says Sirkati. Regardless of how long it takes, we continue to pressure the judiciary and perhaps this will bring change. We kind of feel like marchers aren't getting the results we need. 
Sudan continues to struggle under a slow transition, upheavals and killings in the Darfur region, and ongoing strikes and demonstrations. Newspaper editor Mergani believes that this current transitional government could be one of the final opportunities for Sudan. We're not talking about the old regime, al-Bashir regime. We're talking about the old system, the complete system, not, not uh, the political system, the way of thinking, the way of ruling the country, the approach of, uh, of the government. Everybody will be very desperate if we lose this chance. The waters of the Nile gently roll along the riverbank as people go about their day. Major reforms must be made while the country and the international community still remain supportive of the government, says Mergani, as many Sudanese wonder how long that will take. Reporting for RFI's Africa Calling from Khartoum, Sudan, this is Laura Angela Bagneto. There's been some recent movement in terms of Sudan's security reforms with a new draft internal security agency bill on the table. But that's provoked angry reactions from many who say that it grants the authority to arrest someone without a court order or warrant and to keep them for two days. A move that harks back to the sweeping powers security was given during the Bashir regime. Find us on your favorite podcast platform app, including iTunes, Spotify and Google Podcasts. In Somalia, the country sinks deeper into political turmoil over the ostensibly difficult-to-convene elections, yet some achievements are being made in its airspace control. The Somalia Civil Aviation Authority has recently launched and celebrated its first aircraft registration, where the Somalia-registered aircrafts will be showing the Somalia Air Code 6O, or 6 Oscar, beneath their wings and tails. Mohamed Sheikh Noor reports from Mogadishu. Somalia lost control of its airspace in 1991 as the country plunged into civil war. The International Civil Aviation Organization, ICAO, took over navigation services of the country to its nearest base in Nairobi, Kenya, so that air accidents over Somalia's airspace could be avoided during the chaos in the country. We are here at Mogadishu Airport. It has taken some time between getting the airspace back and actually registering an aircraft, says Ahmed Maalim Hassan, the Director General of Somalia Civil Aviation Authority. In February, he registered the first aircraft in Somalia in 30 years. Hassan explains the benefits of this registration. Those who do not register with the Somalia Aviation Authority will have to do considerably more paperwork. They can keep their foreign uh, registration and they will get uh, the foreign uh, operator certificate, which is FOC. And the Somali registered aircraft will get a operator certificate, which comes with a lot of privilege. Like you don't need a permit to fly to Hagesa, to fly to Garaway, and to fly anywhere around the world from Somali Civil Aviation Authority, even though that you need a permission from the destination country. Somalia relies heavily on over flights and aircrafts, generating a six-digit income monthly. This includes flights that are not landing in Somalia, but transiting towards Europe through Somalia airspace to islands in the Indian Ocean like Seychelles, Mauritius, and Madagascar. 
This, however, will grow the country's economy, according to Ahmed Khadr, an economist at the University of Somalia. Yes, it can help underpin the economy of Somalia for several reasons. Because, you know, it will facilitate the, the movement and people will have access to travel in and outside Somalia. It will increase the safety of the passengers. It will increase the government of revenue. Especially, the government will receive landing fees, terminal fees, and other fees associated with airline transportation. So I think it will have several impacts which are expected to be positive, both in the short term and the long term. According to the director of the Somalia Civil Aviation Authorities, the services the Civil Aviation Authority is providing has already created jobs for Somali youth, says Hassan. When we announced that Somalia is, can register an aircraft and it has completed the legal process uh, uh, meeting the AKO standard, then so many uh, Somali business, businessmen are encouraged to buy an aircraft and they bought one that has attracted like 20, 30 employees. Yasmin Abdi Farah is one of the three female pilots working for Mandek Airline, whose aircraft has recently been registered in Somalia. Farah is popular with local air travelers, and I met up with her after her flight from Beledwene, a town in central Somalia. As a female pilot in a patriarchal society, Yasmin is a role model for young girls hoping to take advantage of opportunities created by Somalia's return into international aviation. Okay, for a girl, it's okay. As much as people say it's tough, it's not tough. It's easy, alhamdulillah, it's been okay. She says the unveiling of Somalia's registered aircraft will generate more business for Somalia. They've registered that, they've started doing it. You've seen the two aircraft already registered, which is a good thing for Somalia because six Oscar, it's been long since it's been there. The aircrafts who are flying here are foreigners most of the time. So it gives opportunity to Somalia to create more money in the aviation, have their own registered aircrafts and operate in the IKO business just like any other country in Africa. Here at Aden Adi Airport, Somalia is already collaborating with all countries bordering Somalia and beyond including countries as far away as India and Seychelles. Somalia has more airspace over the sea than the land, but as we know there is no maritime control on Somalia's sea waters itself, whereas the Somali Civil Aviation Authority is already controlling the airspace over the sea. Kenya is among the neighboring countries of Somalia, both on the land and at sea, and there is currently a political row between them to the extent of severing the diplomatic ties between the two countries. Hassan says, despite this, there shouldn't be any disruption of service in Somali airspace. No, we have not seen any significant uh, impact on our operation because uh, aviation is free from politics. We are dealing with lives of human. Uh, aircraft departs from here to Nairobi, then the lives of those people uh, uh, is in our hands. So we have to make sure that people travel safely from point A to point B.
he declined to speak about the threat of militant organizations that killed four of his colleagues on one spot at K4 of Mogadishu a few years back. Most people are opting to travel via air, which is more expensive than via road. The journey is because fighters like Al-Shabaab are operating in between most of the cities in the jungle and they often ambush whoever travels there. The formation of a seven-member civil aviation authority board was announced earlier this year in an effort to regulate Somalia's skies. Reporting for Africa Calling, this is Mohamed Sheikh Noor in Mogadishu. Africa Calling. We're almost at the end of our program, but we have music maven Alison Hurd in the studio. Hi, Alison. What song do you have for us? Hi, Laura Angela. You've been talking this week about Sudan and clinging on to uh, hope for change despite it all. I want to take you back to a time in the country when Khartoum in particular was a real hotbed of musical creativity. We're going back to the 70s and 80s with singers like Mohamed Waldi. Uh, they were stars all across the continent. They could literally pack out 60,000-seater stadiums. Quite amazing. And a compilation of the music from this time called Two Niles to Sing a Melody was released a couple of years ago. It includes some wonderful violin-driven music uh, from the 70s and then more electronic stuff with synthesizers from the early 80s. Um, and then the music that artists made in exile once they were forced out after the coup in 1989. Most of the voices on the album are men, uh, because most of the singers at the time were, but I've chosen a piece from one of the two women who feature on the album, and the piece is called Galbi La Tahwa Tani, My Heart, Don't Fall in Love Again, mm. and it's sung by the wonderful Samira Dunia. I do hope you like it. Excellent. Well, thanks for listening to episode 23 of the Africa Calling podcast. We'll leave you with the fabulous sounds of Samira Dunya. I'm Laura Angela Bagnetto. This episode was edited and recorded by Erwan Rome and Cecile Pompiani. And special thanks on the Sudan segment to Abdallah Mohidin. Goodbye for now.